mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men. And they ate. That same night, they got up and left. Morning, everyone. Interesting story. Let's ask the Lord's help. Thank you for your precious word, Lord. 
And humbly as your children, we come to you asking for understanding. And Lord, not so much for increased knowledge as for heart transformation. That your word would have a great impact upon us, that we would yield ourselves to you, that your word would fall on good soil. Lord, that we would gain perspective, please, this morning, your perspective. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been travelling together through the book of First Samuel, and we should be finished by Christmas. <laughs> Just a few chapters to go. So just to kind of race through where we've been so far uh, to some extent, not to fill in all the gaps, but 1 Samuel is uh, where we find Israel, very, a uh, very sad moment in the history of Israel where they look at all the nations around them and being the only nation on the whole earth to have God the Creator as their king. They say, we want a human king like all the other nations. And Samuel the prophet um, takes it to the Lord and the Lord's response is a warning to us, I think, that he gives them what they ask for. They, what they ask for is wrong and it grieves God, but he gives them what they ask for. So... Let's be careful what we persistently seek and ask for. Um, we might just get it. And Samuel um, anoints Saul as king, and he's this great, enormous, handsome fellow. And uh, some people like him, some people don't like him. But his moment comes, and this fellow named Nahash whose name means serpent, is bullying and terrorising and traumatising and um, humiliating God's people. And Saul hears of it and he rallies the, the men and they go and they defeat this guy Nahash and then Samuel sees the opportunity and he says, now let's, let's recognise this guy as king properly. And Saul is celebrated as the, the one who would stand up for God's people and lead them as their king. But he says to them, if you and your king serve the Lord, it's going to be good. But if you and your king don't serve the Lord, it's going to go pear-shaped very badly. And from that point on, we see things go pear-shaped very badly. Saul kind of deteriorates and the Lord gives, commissions him um, to deal with the Amalekites and we'll talk about that a little bit later and he fails to do so. And the Lord is grieved that he's made Saul king and he chooses instead this little shepherd boy, David. And David is anointed king and from that point on, the Spirit of God departs from Saul and is upon David. And David goes from strength to strength. And Saul goes from strength to weakness. And we find this increasing jealousy of Saul towards David. And he's more and more threatened by David. 
And to the point where David's playing his harp in the tent for Saul because Saul is tormented by a bad spirit and the spirit of God is upon David and it soothes Saul. But uh, on this particular occasion, um, Saul says, I'm just going to pin this kid to the wall. And he gets his spear and he tries to put David into the wall with his spear, but David evades him a couple of times and then David's on the run. He escapes to the Philistines, he escapes to a cave, he escapes to the forest, and Saul is just relentlessly pursuing this one man. He's not worried about the kingdom anymore. He's not worried about the people. He's worried about David. And David said, what are you chasing a flea for, this dead dog? And a couple of occasions, Saul ends up in David's hands, David's hiding in a cave with his men and Saul goes to the toilet in that cave. And his men say, hello, the Lord's giving you this guy. Let's pin him to the wall this time. And uh, David says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Twice, Saul is completely helplessly in David's hands. And David refuses to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He shows great integrity and restraint and trusts in God that in God's time, he will fulfill his promise to make David king. So David, in chapter 27, chapter 20, yep, chapter 27, he flees again to the Philistines because he thinks to himself, if I stay in Israel, eventually Saul is going to get me. So he takes his, his two wives, his two new wives, not a good idea, David, and his 600 men, and he goes to Gath, and he's there with King Achish again. And he says, I don't deserve to be in the royal city with you, King Achish, give me a little town. So he gives him the town of Ziklag, and Ziklag from then on becomes to, uh, belongs to Judah's king, kings. And it's interesting to me to see that the promise that God gave Abraham seems to be now resting upon David, even though David's in exile. We read earlier that David's got 400 men with him, now he's got 600 men. And even in the land of the Philistines, he's been given land. Remember the promise God gave to Abraham? I will give you land, I will increase your number. And this is what's happening to David, even while he's on the run. And David's saying uh, David is is going out to the different um, uh, towns, the enemies of Israel, in order to uh, to plunder and to conquer and to get goods for himself. And he comes back and King Achish says, where have you been today, David? And he goes, oh, I've been to one of the towns in Judah. I've been to this town in Judah. I've been to this town in Israel. And, um, and Zik, uh, Achish is thinking to himself, this is good. David's making an enemy of himself to to Israel, he's going to be my servant for life. This is good. And uh, David's just kind of leading him down the garden path once again. And then we find that the Philistines are gathering themselves for war again against Israel. And as they're um, getting ready for war, Achish says to David, I want you to realise, David, that you're fighting on our side this time. You're fighting with me. And David says, that sounds good. Now I can show you what I can do. And off they go to battle against Israel. And 
the commanders of the Philistine army are looking at these guys and they're looking at King Achish and they're saying, what's this all about? Who are these Hebrews? And he says, this is David. He's been with me for over a year now and he is terrific. I haven't found any fault with him. And they say, do you realise who this guy is? They sing songs about this guy. Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his tens of thousands. Uh, He ain't coming with us. And King Achish says, look, I have found no fault with him. He has been, he's been a faithful servant and he's going to fight by my side. And they say, he's out of sorts with Saul. How do you reckon he's going to get back in Saul's good books? With the heads of Philistine soldiers. He's not coming. Send him home. So Achish says to David, look, the commanders are not happy with you. You're going to have to go home. And he says, what have I done now? Haven't I done the right thing? Do you remember this is what he said when his older brothers came, when he was um, going to visit them in the battle against Goliath of Gath? And he's asking, what's going to be done for the man who beats this this Goliath? And his brothers take him to task and say, you're just a busybody little kid. And he says, what have I done now? So who are you saying to King Achish? What have I done now? I haven't done anything wrong, have I? Why do I have to leave? And he says, look, you're like an angel of God to me. But these guys don't trust you. You better go home. So off he goes. Now, in the middle of this story of David with the Philistines, we have another story, a story of Saul. And Saul is gathering his troops for battle. And it says, Samuel was dead. This is from verse 3. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritus from the land the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. And we find out later through the voice of Samuel, who's been summoned by a spiritist, that Saul is actually in the final hours of his life. What do we learn about Saul? This Saul, who slew Nahash, the serpent king, was a head taller than anyone else in Israel, this handsome hero, and now he's reduced at the end of this story to someone who is being helped off the floor by an old woman. How far has he fallen? What can we learn about Saul from this story of his final night on earth that speaks to us of the trajectory of his life for a long time up until this point? The first thing we can learn is that Saul was prepared to resort to sin when he was desperate. The Lord's not answering me. The Philistines are attacking me. I've got to do something. What's he going to do? Well, it says to us, he'd already put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Was it the right thing to do? Absolutely the right thing to do. Listen to what um, the law of Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is as the people were preparing to enter the land. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, 
who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. And this is what Samuel was. He was a prophet that the Lord had raised up for his people. And now Samuel had died and Saul was desperate. What was he going to do? And there are going to be times and there have been times in our life when we are in desperate, desperate need. And these are our times of great temptation. Do you remember when the evil one came to Jesus? He came to Jesus when he was very hungry. And he tempted him to sin. And Saul, in his desperate state, he knew this was wrong. But this was the way he was going to solve the problem and he violated his conscience. You know, the scripture actually speaks a fair bit about our conscience as Christians. Did you know that when you become a Christian... You are pledging to live with a good conscience before the Lord. To do what is right. To do what you believe is right. And this is what Peter says about baptism. In 1 Peter 3.21 he says, Baptism, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. There will be times when we are tempted to violate our own conscience when we are in desperate need. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the good fight, Timothy, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Shipwrecked their faith. Does that sound a bit like Saul? He is a shipwreck, <laughs> isn't he? He is a wreck of a man. He has violated his conscience. Please, brothers and sisters, be very careful. Keep a tender conscience before the Lord. And if you know that you have been resorting to something you know is wrong in order to meet your own needs, please, bring it out into the light. Confess, repent, turn back to the Lord. Don't shipwreck your faith. Saul was filled with terror, the scripture says, because he was focused on himself. Did you notice what he said? When the woman brought up Samuel and Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He says, I am in great distress. That was true. But tell me if this arrest, you think the rest is true, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me. Do you think if Saul went, 
didn't go back to the battle, that the battle would still go ahead without him? I think so. The Philistines are fighting against me. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Where's the focus of Saul's heart? I can't remember what the name of the financial group was, but it used to tell us on the ads when I was a kid, the most important person in the world is me. It's very confusing because it's talking to everyone and everyone is not me. It must have only been on my TV. What a contrast to King David when he faces Goliath and this great threatening figure is overshadowing the people who are in great terror and running away from him. And David looks at this guy and he says, who is this guy who has defied the armies of the living God? Where's David's eyes? This guy is defying the honour of God. His eyes weren't on himself. His eyes were on the honour of God. And when Saul summons David into his tent, David tells a story. He says, don't let anyone be afraid of this Philistine. I'll tell you a story about what happens when a little, when my little sheep get threatened. If a lion or a bear comes, they don't survive the experience. Because I'll take that lion and I'll grab it by its hair and I'll beat it to death. Because you don't touch David's sheep. Why, did he, why do we have that story in the Bible? Because this, God says, this is the heart that I want looking after my people. I want someone who's going to protect my people, who's going to stand for my honour and is going to love my people. Like David loves his sheep. Saul, he wasn't thinking about his soldiers. They were all picking on him. Everyone was picking on him. It was all about him. It's very dangerous, isn't it? When our lives, when our hearts become consumed with ourself. Samuel mentions the reason God chose David instead of Saul. It's because, he said, you didn't fulfill God's fierce wrath against the Amalekites when you disobeyed his word. These stories in the Old Testament are very troubling to me at times. The brutal warfare that we find in the Old Testament. Sometimes they're a bit hard to understand, a bit hard to accept, and um, and I don't think we should be comfortable with them. It's a violence, and it's it's awful. But let's try and understand from the Lord's perspective why He was angry with the Amalekites. Chapter fifteen of First Samuel. This is where it happened. Samuel said to Saul. The Lord had me choose you to be king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. When the Israelites were on their way out of Egypt, the nation of Amalek attacked them. I am the Lord all-powerful, 
and now I'm going to make Amalek pay. It was because of how they treated God's people on their way out of Egypt. Now remember, Israel had been slaves in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years under the brutal, cruel oppression of Pharaoh. And when God sent Moses to rescue his people from slavery and to bring them into their new land, Pharaoh not only said no, but he actually made their lives worse. He crushed them even harder. And they cried out to their God in their misery and in their slavery. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let them go. And God, through ten plagues of increasing intensity, set them free so that Pharaoh in the end said, leave. And God took his people by the hand. He calls them his son. This is what Moses said to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And God takes his little boy by the hand. His beaten up, timid, bullied little boy. And he leads him out of that place of slavery. And he leads him through the Red Sea. And he leads them up towards their promised land. And what do the Amalekites do? They attack them. How do you think God feels about that? He's angry. I'm going to talk to the mothers for a minute. How do you feel if someone picks on your kid? You? When I was in kindergarten, I was a cheeky little fella. Still a cheeky little fella in some ways. And I used to love kind of rolling up the big kids. And, um, silly boy. And one of the big kids didn't like that and he started giving a bit back. And I was walking home from school one day and I said, Mum, that's the boy that's been picking on me. And mum said, just wait here for a minute. <laughs> so mum goes and has a little chat to that boy. And uh, he didn't pick on me anymore after that. <laughs> In fact, he was quite a nice boy to me after that, for the rest of my time that he was at the school. You don't pick on Mary Skews's boy. <laughs> And God said to Saul, I was angry. I was angry when they did that to my boy, my boy that I was taking out of Egypt. And I want you to go and do something about it. And Saul was more afraid of what his men thought than what God had told him to do. And um, he wasn't obedient to the Lord. And he frustrated the wrath of God. You know, God's heart has not changed. God does not change. And so there is, a, there is a consistency between what we read in the Old Testament and what we read in the New Testament. And I'll give you an example. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 25 about what's going to happen at the end of the age when the Son of Man 
in all his glory, separates the people like sheep and goats, like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And he says to those on his left, I get the left and the right mixed up. Um, You can check it for yourself in Matthew chapter 25. But he says to those who are the goats, depart from me. You're going to be punished. And he says that to those on his right, the sheep, welcome to the kingdom, the joy and the glory. And what is the criteria by which the nations are judged by the Son of Man? It's according to what you have done for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, says Jesus. It's how you treat my people. How you treat my people. God's fierce, protective love is towards his people. Do you remember Saul, when Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus confronted him and said, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says, me? God takes it very personally when people, the way people treat those that belong to him. Now, I feel sad for Saul, do you? Do you feel any sympathy towards him? It's almost like he's in a corner, poor fella. Do you think? Because the Lord's not answering him. He's in this terrible situation and the Lord's not answering him. What is he supposed to do? And that's what he says to Samuel. He says, well, what other choice? This is kind of how it sounds to me. What other choice did I have? I had to come and violate my conscience and do what I knew what was wrong in order to fix this. I want you to tell me what to do. Was there anything that that Saul could have done? Because the scripture says to us that the Lord actually doesn't put us in a corner. He doesn't leave us with no options. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says... No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. When Saul heard rumours of the Philistines gathering for battle, what option did he have? Do you know what? He had proven himself quite astute at finding David, hadn't he? He knows that David's with the Philistines. That's why he stopped chasing him. Saul, you are in a big mess. Why don't you call on David? Get your fastest horses, get your best riders, find him, call on him, he's the king. If you read the next chapter, chapter 29, you read it for yourself and see if you agree with me, but it sounds very much like David was really looking forward to fighting for Israel against the Philistines 
from within the Philistine ranks. He seems to be using deliberately ambiguous language. He says to King Achish, now you're going to see what I can do. Oh, he's going to see what David can do, all right. And when he says, sorry, David, you can't come with me, David says, why can't I fight for my king? Who's David's king? And then even King Achish says, no, go home with the servants of your Lord. Servants of your Lord. Who's David's Lord? Saul. I think the language there is hinting to us that David would have loved to have fought beside his king and he actually would have fulfilled the words of those commanders of the Philistines. What better way to restore his relationship with Saul than to fight alongside him? But no. Saul would die before he would give up his crown to David. And he held on to his pride. And so Saul died, would die, sorry to give away the ending. An enemy of God. Can you see that this has been his trajectory for some time? And so this is something that's really good for us to examine ourselves by. How is your conscience this morning? What's the focus of your heart this morning? And who is the ruler of your life this morning? We're going to have a time of communion together. And we're going to have a look at another king on the night before he died. Another king who was in anguish. Our king. Our king. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 22. So I'll read to you from Luke chapter 22 and from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Could I go back to that slide, Jeff? Is that possible? The first one that says, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Let's, do you think Jesus was in less anguish than Saul on the night before his death? And yet, let's look at the response of Jesus in his distress. Saul resorted to sin. Jesus resorted to prayer. In our times of anguish, 
when temptation inflames our very self, when we are feeling like we are cornered and we don't have any other option, Jesus shows us we can resort to prayer. Don't resort to sin, resort to prayer. This is what Jesus did. Saul was focused on himself. Jesus said, Father, if there is any other way, yet not my will, but yours be done. Saul frustrated the wrath of God. Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What cup was it that Jesus had been given by the Father to drink? In the Old Testament language, the cup that God gives to the nations to drink is the cup of his fury, of his wrath, of his fierce wrath. And Jesus was in great anguish because that was what he was going to drink. He was going to take upon himself the wrath of God, God's rightful anger against human sin. In Romans 3.25 it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Saul failed to demonstrate the justice of God But Jesus fully demonstrates the justice of God in taking all of our sin, the wrath of God, upon himself on that brutal cross. Saul held on to his pride and he refused to let his crown go. But what about Jesus? Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus, in a sense, became the enemy of God, taking all of our sin upon himself in order that we who were God's enemy might now be reconciled to him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.